Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Despite his success as a novelist, Joseph Conrad was prone to periods of deep depression. This is an extract from a letter he wrote to his friend Graham Cunningham. There is a, let us say, a machine. It evolved itself out of a chaos of scraps of iron, and behold, it knits. I am horrified at the horrible work and stand appalled. It knits us in and it knits us out. It has knitted time, space, pain, death, corruption, despair, and all the illusions. And nothing matters. Paradoxically, Conrad's feelings of depression were mitigated by his ability to express them in his writings. Depression is our subject this week. Winston Churchill called it black dog. It can manifest itself in a wide range of intensities and many people experience it at some point in their lives. Developments in psychiatry mean that we now have more resources to call on to overcome this problem than Conrad faced. Here's Sarah Smith, a Cambridgeshire GP, speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast. Guidelines suggest that in most cases of mild to moderate depression, we can manage that with some sort of counselling or talking therapy. One problem is that we often don't have enough counsellors or psychologists at our fingertips to, for someone to be seen within the next two or three weeks. Um, and sometimes you can be on waiting lists for some therapies for several months. Mm. So for some people, they might need a depression medicine to just help prop them up while we're waiting for those other therapies to happen. And then we see some of the more severe depressions where it's appropriate to prescribe an antidepressant straight away. With me to discuss depression and changing minds are Dr Laura Davis, Director of Studies in English at King's College, Cambridge, and the regular podcast contributor, Dr Kitty Alone, a researcher here at the Wolf Institute. Kitty, let me start with you. Is depression helpful? Well, many people would suggest so. Um, I mean, it's certainly common in the sense that it's the leading cause of disability in the in the world. Um, so perhaps one might argue that the global characteristics of low mood or depression um, give us some clue to its significance in the fact that it is so common and so widespread. Um, depression interferes with normal functioning, so it seems sort of intuitively maladaptive. But um, as far back as Darwin, people have been suggesting that actually depression or low mood might actually have some kind of usefulness in terms of evolutionary fitness. What did Darwin have to say then? So Darwin said this, and I like reading Darwin because it makes me sound like I'm clever. Pain or suffering of any kind, if long continued, causes depression and lessens the power of action. 
yet it is well adapted to make a creature guard itself against any great or sudden evil. And this is the general idea that basically depression inhibits any kind of excess or superfluous action or um, the need to sort of pump resources and energy into a futile activity. Um, other people have sort of suggested that it might be some kind of signalling response. So like children cry or infants cry when they're babies, it sort of alerts the attention of the mother. And this is something that's seen in primate infants as well. And some people have argued that this is just like um, the same idea in adults, but it's just gone a bit haywire and it's sort of backfired. So it's adaptive, but it's sort of gone wrong if you like <laughs> but depression also stirs the juices or the creative juices in some way doesn't it Lauren? that's right and there's a long history of interrelated forms so we have melancholia hypochondria and depression now we think of them as different things but historically they've shared various characteristics including an individual being understood to be particularly susceptible to fineness of feeling to being overly full of vital spirits, too sensitive in other words, and that might lead you to be um, indicating yourself to the world as particularly intuitive or perceptive or creative. Um, there are gender dimensions, of course, to this, and it seems to get a more positive reception in men than in, than in women, but that it's related certainly to the idea that there's a kind of quickness of mind and a quickness of feeling why does it have a more positive reception amongst men? Is that simply patriarchal society or or is there something else going on? So there have been varying periods in which there have been cults or fashions for uh, depression and, and melancholia. Um, this happens in the 16th century, it happens again in the 18th century, and it's associated with tropes of genius, essentially. So that if you have a masculinised idea of genius, um, those, those symptoms manifest themselves in accordance with that. Whereas with women, we have a slightly different vocabulary. So instead of hypochondria, we might use the word vapours. Um, and it's associated with nervous uh, conditions and hence with a kind of lack of strength. Some critics also argue that we see a transition around the period of the French Revolution, such that the tropes of sensibility associated with melancholia and hypochondria become associated with political radicalism and fear about the terror and of the actions of those uh, Jacobin rebels leads people to want to think in a different way about how we can understand those conditions so as to disassociate it from political action. It's interesting because I was, as you were speaking, thinking of the genius of King David. You used the word genius with with a man and and King David was known to suffer from depression. He talked about how his soul was downcast and it's not seen as a weakness. It's seen as a, a strength, maybe a motivator for him writing 150 Psalms. You've looked at some figures such as Boswell, who's written on this. I have. And for Boswell, I mean, he has a lot of problems to deal with uh, depression, hypochondria. He calls it being one of them. For him, it's very debilitating. So he writes about the world becoming one undistinguished wild, the idea that he can no longer identify different ideas. Things are flattened and homogenized and overwhelming for him. On the other hand, he is self-consciously writing 
in order to stylize himself as a particular kind of man of letters. In particular, he's a big fan of uh, Joseph Addison and wants to see himself as a later 18th century spectator. So he writes a column called The Hypochondriac from 1777 for about seven years, in which he explores a whole range of of topics, um, all of which come back to his experience of the world and his preference for the city over the country. Um, and his belief that for a man of intellectual capacities, he needs the city to um, invigorate him, and that if left to his own devices in the country, depression will come upon him. So the city as a place of vigor and, and not a depression, it's not my view of the city somewhere, sometimes, I have to, I have to say. that. What about you, Kitty? What sort of places uh, strike you as places of melancholia? Um, for me, melancholia is always sort of associated with solitude. So... Um, just thinking about the depressive characters you meet in literature, for example, they all seem to sort of pontificate or talk about their depressive experience in isolation, in solo, if you like. So, I mean, the classic example would be Hamlet, to be or not to be, sort of, you know, striding about on a stage discussing suicide. Um, so for me, the way I've most often seen melancholia presented in, in media and literature is through solitude, through sort of the main protagonist talking directly to the reader about their experience of depression. As a cognitive social psychologist, what place does depression have? Well, depression is interesting. As I said, it's the most common disability in the world. It's hugely common. In the US, it affects over 13 million individuals per year. And in terms of monetary costs, that's in excess of $43 billion. So that's in terms of treatment and lost productivity. Um, but the way that we diagnose depression and the way we conceptualize it is from a very Western perspective. So the sort of the psychiatric Bible, if you like, is the DSM, which is currently in the fifth edition. Um, and the framework that the DSM uses for sort of determining the criteria and the symptomology is from this very Western perspective. Now, when you think that the majority of the global population do not live in the West and they do not live in sort of Western secular societies, we are potentially missing a huge, huge sample of humanity when we're trying to understand the actual symptomology and causes of depression. We only have, if you like, a, a glimpse of it. What does DSM stand for? The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. I'm glad I asked. You mentioned 30 million people, Kitty. Are these all people that have been diagnosed by medics or are they self-diagnosed? And this question we had in the clip about therapy versus chemicals in terms of um, um, dealing with depression. Um, do you have any views on that? So we have a tendency, or at least one of the the accusations thrown at the um, the field of psychiatry is that it has a tendency to over-medicalise symptoms. So experiences that would be within the normal range of common human experience are now being sort of medicalised. So the distinction one has to make, first of all, is what the distinction between low mood, which is sort of a relatively normal human experience, and depression, which has some kind of pathological element to it. Um, of course, how, as an individual, how you view the, the sort of the nosology or the cause of your disease or your depression will influence the way you treat it. So if you have a view of depression that's now quite common, which is that it is biomedically sound it is biomedically derived it has um it is the pathology of neurons you will presumably have more of an inclination to um take medicine to take to treat 
your symptoms chemically. And this might perhaps lead to some kind of resistance for the more traditional cognitive talking therapies. On the other hand, of course, if you view depression as, well, it's just natural and um, it just needs to run its course and it's a perfectly common experience within human psychological existence, then you are less likely to want to medicate it. You're more likely to engage with sort of talking therapies rather than medication. And, I mean, depression is a confusing beast really nobody really knows is it a defense mechanism is it something that's gone wrong is it something to protect us that's backfired so really nobody really knows how best to define it and this of course has huge implications in how do you treat it mm-hmm. and, and and does lit- is literature a sort of um, therapy in its own right the writing the reading the exhibiting of the signs of um, depression i mean it certainly has been and when we look at one of the enormously significant early text so Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy which he first writes in 1621 it's a 900 page uh, mishmash of varying things but he does frame that text with the line that he himself has suffered from melancholy and that he is in part writing in order to um, prevent it so he describes melancholy as the characteristic of mortality um, but that it becomes a problem when it moves from being an inherent disposition to becoming a habit that you can't get out of and his instructions are be not solitary be not idle and that writing and communicating with others he's a scholar but also a, a clergyman is one way of of doing that but actually just listening to kitty there talking about the range of approaches we have it's clear to me actually that when we look at historical understandings of depression many of the things that we're talking about now we we've already talked about so burton for example thinks about varying causes he thinks about cures along the lines of exercise um, drugs purging but also talking human relationships and contact or George Cheney writing later in The English Malady, where he describes depression as a characteristic feature of the English, in part due to our weather and our soil, but also our sedentary occupations, the humour of our cities. He's suggesting, too, that there are varying ways in which we can self-manage, and that has to do with regimens of the body as well as of the mind. Um, And of course, reading and educating the mind is, is part of that. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Laura Davis and Kitty Alone. A well-publicised problem with a chemical treatment of depression is dependency. Here's psychiatrist Romo Rias Al-Haq talking about antidepressants on the Naked Neuroscientist podcast. I think a lot of fear generally patients do express about stopping medication is that firstly, they think the depression would come back. Secondly, a lot of it is to do with the apprehension around withdrawal symptoms, what they might start feeling or experiencing once the medication is stopped. But we as clinicians do empower the patients, try and educate them, try and monitor them to make the right choices is there an element where depression is addictive, that you, you go down a certain route and it like one experience leads to another experience and you, you enter the black dog, as Winston Churchill called it? I think for many people that is um, one of the experiences they have while depressed. So one idea is rumination, where people sort of overthink bad things that have happened and they sort of catastrophize events. And One thing that becomes clear is that the moment you try and stop doing that, the more they come back and bite you, if you like. It's like this idea of the intrusive thought. The moment you try to stop thinking about it, it'll suddenly become more and more prevalent in your mind. And one of the things about depression is, of course, that it interferes with normal functioning. So you are much less likely to go out 
and, and engage in everyday social activities or go out on a big hike or sort of engage with friends if you are depressed, you are much more likely to stay indoors and and sort of hide yourself away, which leads to more rumination. And we're still thinking, as we used to, about ideas of balance, aren't we? So some of mm. the vocabulary is about balancing of chemicals in the brain, etc. But as we all know, actually, to achieve a balance, it's not then you reach it and you stay at a static point. So whereas we used to think about humoral systems and balancing the four humours and realising that that place of stasis was never achieved, it seems to me that there's something similar in our current discussions yeah, about that yeah. chemical. And I make. find it interesting as well, this this idea that the default state of human beings is happiness. That if we are depressed or sort of in low mood, there must be something wrong. But there's what is to say that the, the natural state of man is not to be slightly underwhelmed or, sl- or slightly well, depressed. The, there's nothing to suggest that humans should be happy all the time. I mean, theologically, <laughs> theologically for me, it's, it's less about the happiness. It's more about the journey. And and if one's on a journey, if one's feeling that there's some some sense of progress, whether it's it's spiritual or or, or, or material, then then it's it, the depression seems further away. It's when you're feeling that there's no progress, you're stuck. Anyway, from a personal point of view, that's when depression can can set in. I'm just wondering whether depression actually is a stimulant for some of these authors. I remember reading Le Fleur du Mal and, and Baudelaire and thinking, you know. He must have written that from a pretty um, depressive standpoint. And we might think of uh, Goethe's Sorrows of Young Werther or Wordsworth's Prelude or Coleridge's Dejection, an ode, or Keats' Ode on Melancholy. I mean, it's partly that they're participating in a, in a, in a fashion for writing about these things. But I think there's also an element um, of sort of depersonalization or of achieving a degree of detachment from yourself that sometimes comes along with a diagnosis of depression that enables that kind of self-reflection or it may just be simply because you stop doing many of the other activities that would otherwise have taken up your time. Creation uh, is part of some of the thinking about why we might offer art therapy now or drama therapy etc um, because there's, there's something about the generative uh, capacity of those activities which may have uh, an ameliorative effect. In terms of the creation, I remember reading a number of uh, biographies of Charles de Gaulle or Winston Churchill and these great leaders who also went through these periods of deep depression, but it didn't prevent them. It may even have contributed to their to, to their leadership. Is there something in the human the human condition, Kitty, that that actually fosters that in in our leaders, whether they're male or female? Well, it's interesting. Of course, there are different types of depression. So this is where we need to be careful. Um, one of the things, so one of the tropes of sort of um, the Victorian age is that people who were depressed had like a dullness of wit, that they were dull in mind and that somehow sort of dampened their senses. And of course, that's not consistent with the idea of the tortured genius who strides about the moors writing beautiful poetry. Um, so we've got to be careful to not conflate all depression as the same thing. So if you have manic depression, for example, you have periods of extreme exhilaration and extreme high where creativity is extremely elevated. And then these are sort of inevitably, inevitably followed by periods of crucifying depression. So it's more likely that the, that the creative geniuses that we think about suffered from a type of manic depression, whereas the creativity didn't come from when they were in their low period, it came from this period of extreme, intense emotional awakening, if you like. And has our understanding of depression changed over time? Biomedically, clinically, our, our understanding of um, depression in all its forms and the symptomology has come on 
leaps and bounds since the Victorian age when you were basically just shut up in a bedroom and told to get, you know, rest it out. But perhaps the way that we intuitively think about depression hasn't changed too much. But we're much more aware of depression today, particularly in young people. Oh, yeah. And of course, it was extremely prevalent in the media because recently Caroline Flack killed herself. There's a sense in which, historically speaking, there's been a separation between uh, depression and related to that is melancholia and and mania and madness. Um, and I think that you're up, upholding that distinction. And I think the contemporary discussions about depression have done much to normalise it and to make it easier to talk about. But there remains, I think, something of a, a question mark about whether or not it's a kind of aberrant state, um, a, a maladapted state, um, and that's always been in the in the, the accounts of accounts of it. it. It's clear that we're much more at ease talking about it, and it's much more prevalent in terms of our what we we watch on our screens or or what we're reading in in, in literature, let alone in um, in the media. That's right, but there's still something about the ways in which. Um, uh, publications like the DSM or guidelines suggest a sort of periods of time in which it's appropriate to experience depression or for example to distinguish between grief and prolonged grief or acceptable periods of response from trauma as and then a period that would be too long and you'd be said that you had PTSD etc so I'm not against those labels of course but there's a, there's a kind of a normative understanding about these processes which doesn't really take account of individual experiences and, and context because grief does lead into forms of depression i mean in literature it's often the trigger isn't it of, of melancholia right and so freud makes the distinction between mourning and melancholia and melancholia is the is the uh, the malignant form of an otherwise normal uh, process yeah and it may be um worth touching on something we discussed on a previous project, which is your good death project uh, in terms of um, the question of grief and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable in that mourning period. And right, and questions about what to do when we're in a uh, situation at the moment where, although we have a greater diversity um, within our population and you would hope more conversation between communities, actually there are many rituals and processes and public ceremonies to do with easing the process of loss and mourning that w- that we no longer have. And in some senses that means families can choose for themselves and it means that they're not held within restrictive norms or having to spend vast amounts of money on mourning clothes and all the rest of it. On the other hand, it means people have to navigate those waters on their own and they may well find that isolating and people are in need of support that they may not be able to access. I think that's a really good point, actually. So my own personal experience of grief is that you're sort of out at sea you don't really know what to do and I almost find myself sort of wishing for the return of Victorian norms of grief observance like it's you wear the black armband and everybody knows that you are grieving and it's I think it's probably quite helpful because you're in a very vulnerable state and to sort of signal it socially I think is probably very helpful but of course that doesn't exist now so you're left to sort of navigate this very very complex emotional state on your own. Of course, religious customs do provide those rules and regulations for the periods of how long you should be grieving for, what sort of things you should be doing during the mourning process, what prayers you should be saying, and and actually doing that in public so that people do know that there's somebody here who's grieving. So there is that that support that one's had over, you know, millennia, probably. Um, But we are much more comfortable about talking about it. This is something that, as a child, I never would have talked about 
questions of depression, whereas I hear my children talk about it and their friends talk about it in what seems to me a very constructive, positive way. So presumably the talking about depression is in itself a, um, a positive aspect of young people today, would you say? Yes, I would think so. I mean, certainly people, the public's awareness of um, mental disorders or mood disorders like depression is so much stronger and better than what it was 50 years ago. Um, I mean, I remember when I was little, um, even then, my parents didn't really talk about it. So my brother's uncle was a manic depressive, but we were never told this. We were just told that he had an illness that made him sad. And of course, now children and parents and within the family context, they're much more open about discussing the symptoms of depression, which is helpful because it also helps you recognise if there is a family member who is exhibiting these symptoms, you are much more likely to sort of get them before it gets too late. And yet, on the other hand, you've got the social media pressures, which seem to be actually fostering. I mean, research is showing that it's, it's, it's generating sense of uh, depression amongst young people. So on the one hand, you've got people more able to talk about it. And yet, on the other, there seems to be more of it. If the media as sort of a, a single beast, if you like, it doesn't really know what to do with depression. On the one hand, it's all sort of very in favour of advocating, you know, there's nothing to be ashamed of. But um, they sort of take, either they glamorise depression. So I'm thinking about, for example, um, in the 90s, there was a spate of what Bill Clinton called heroin chic. And it sort of coincided with the, the publication of the Prozac Nation by Elizabeth Wurzel. And also the um, the suicide of Kurt Cobain. And it was, for teenagers, it was all very glamorous. It was kind of cool to be this depressed individual. Um, you know, suicide was cool because Kurt, Kurt Cobain killed himself. But then there still is this attitude in some areas of the media where depression is sort of viewed with some type of suspicion. So they haven't quite reached a balanced representation. It's either too glamorised or it's either downplayed. Right, and suicide remains one of the leading kill or the leading killer of young men in the um, in the up to their thirties. Um, and if you would speak to people who work for the Samaritans, for example, they would say that actually people really do struggle to express not the f- fact necessarily of their depression, but the experience of it. And I would say I agree with this idea that there's a kind of glamorization um, of suicide, but in fact. I would suggest that in the wider media, there's a sort of safe degree of depression that one could have, the kind of depression that is talked about as needing some time off work or possibly some CBT, but not actually a full exploration of the depths of despair that people can suffer. So Samuel Johnson was in fact the person who uh, Churchill borrowed the black dog expression from. He used it first and he said that he inherited a vile depression from his father. It made him mad his whole life and he would have done anything as far as I can tell to not have it and thought of it as just totally debilitating and ghastly. And I don't see many people really expressing that degree of, of the sort of horror of it. And do we know why he came up with the term black dog? I I found that quite fascinating, but I didn't know what it actually stood for. I mean, I assume that it has to do with melancholia and melancholy being black bile in the humoral uh, system. So coming from Hippocrates through Garland. Um, And I suppose also the sense of the dog of something lingering around, a presence that's viscerally felt that you sort of as if it's holding onto your leg, you know, you're sort of dragging it about with you. Um, but that would be a guess. The black part, I'm pretty sure. Of. We're drawing to a close, and I wonder if there's one particular work that you might highlight, Laura, that sort of um, 
epitomizes melancholia or uh, different aspects of depression that have might help the listener grapple with this subject? Well, I won't give one work. Well, it is a work, but it discusses nine individuals who suffered. So there's a book called um, Tormented Hope by Brian Dillon, which writes about he's discussing hypochondria but it's a related condition so he talks about Boswell, Charlotte Bronte, Charles Darwin, Florence Nightingale, Marcel Proust, Andy Warhol as some of those lives and I recommend that as a as a good read. Kitty I know Laura said a lot of names now but is there one thing that um, one work that you've read that um, has shed light on depression? Yes, I'm afraid I'm going to be terribly boring and say, oh, God, it's Hamlet. Um, but for me, the interesting character in terms of depression in Hamlet is not Hamlet. Hamlet is afraid of death um, for what in that sleep of death, what dreams may come. He's afraid to kill himself because he doesn't know what will happen, which to me symbolizes somebody who is not on the verge of killing themselves. If you are suicidal, you generally don't have forward planning or forward thinking um, capacities. They're generally sort of much more diminished. The character that I think most personifies depression in literature is Ophelia. She's overlooked because Hamlet is the character that talks about suicide, but actually Ophelia is the one who kills herself. Ophelia is the one who is deeply tortured. Ophelia is the one who suffers a degree of grief and hurt that um, I think none of the other characters do. And I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that she's female. So Hamlet's depression is masculinized. He strides around and sort of pontificates. But because Ophelia is female, she's weak and she sort of floats down a river and fades away. Um, But I think the depth of her feeling probably matches Hamlet's. Well, I hope we've resolved some of this problematic subject. And thank you to my guests. Laura Davis and Kitty alone. Better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. And thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, feedback or reflections of your own, you can email reflections at nakedscientists.com. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflection podcast at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. Naked Reflections is also available from wherever you access your podcasts. Do join us next time.